Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. It's Wednesday, March the 8th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan, and I'm joined by our political correspondent, Jennifer Bray. Today, we are continuing our series of interviews with the leaders of the smaller parties in the Dáil. The Social Democrats pulled a fast one on us by switching leaders midstream, so we're going to have to reschedule our chat with their new leader, Holly Cairns. But I am very pleased indeed to welcome Richard Boyd Barrett of People Before Profit to the studio. Hi. <laughs> Richard, uh, we've been talking we've been talking to AIM2, been talking to Labour, we're going to be talking to other parties, and we're talking about uh, the, the smaller parties quite a lot, I find, uh, as we move into 2023. And the reason for that is the general perception is that um, that you and these other parties are positioning themselves more clearly now for the run-in, first to the local elections and the general elections. And that's kind of what the story is about at the moment. You guys might feel a little bit different about that because I think your approach to elections in the broader political context is somewhat different from those other parties. Yeah, well, I think, first of all, we would see ourselves as an activist party and not just an electoralist party. And uh, we, I think, are unique enough in always being involved in instigating kind of people power campaigns, not just sort of having our activity linked to the electoral cycle and... uh, I mean, when I first got involved in politics, I had no interest in elections at at all. I was just an activist in the anti-war movement, in the movements around the X case. You know, more recently, obviously, there's been things like the bin charges campaign, water charges, the campaigns around Quilche, stopping the privatization of our forests, anti-racist work. Um, so are you suspicious of the approach with which sees elections as the be-all and end-all of politics? I, I, I think it's absolutely corrupting if you see elections as the be-all and end-all of politics. Uh, and I think principles get dropped uh, in order to uh, take up popular positions. I mean, for example, we didn't probably win a lot of votes from taking a very, very strong position against the recent anti-immigrant stuff that has been going on. Uh, Some people, quite frankly, stayed quiet on it because they didn't think it would do them any electoral favours. Who who would you be talking about there? uh, I'll let let you judge that. You're the political correspondent. But I think think it was very, very clear that people for profit, as a matter of principle, came out fighting and organising protests, whether it was with United Against Racism, which we helped establish, and La Kayla, which we also helped establish. Uh, and we pulled together a very broad United Front, but it was us who were the driving force. We set out with an absolute determination to build a broad United Front and to mobilise what is probably the biggest demonstration we've seen in quite a few years. Can I ask you one thing with that? Una Mulally, our, our columnist, was, was actually praising the role of, of people before profit in, in those protests and, and those counter-protests. And she was also, at the same time, she was critical of uh, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil not having a presence on those protests. But I've also heard people say that the umbrella organisation, La Kayla, 
would have been a cold house for Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil. In other words, that these counter-protests against racism were hijacked is probably too strong a word, but were kind of under the control of, of groups and parties who didn't want certain parts of the political spectrum represented. That's a very conscious, and we, I'll say it very explicitly, that's a very conscious view of ours, which we debated within this broad alliance. And it is a debate within the broad anti-racist movement and the movement against the far right. Is it a good idea to have the parties that most people perceive, and I certainly agree with them in perceiving them this way, as the people responsible for things like the housing crisis, for things like austerity, for things like direct provision, which in my opinion is a, is a racist institution, uh, which actually legitimizes some of the more nasty far-right attitudes. So, yes, I think uh, they should be excluded because they haven't... Uh, challenged the institutional racism, which has led to tens of thousands of people drowning in the Mediterranean, or the institutional racism of direct provision. They've actually presided over it. And they also have been the people responsible for creating the absolutely dire housing crisis, the dire crisis in our health service. Uh, They were responsible for the austerity regimes that inflict such hardship on people. So if you then involve them in a broad movement that is trying to challenge the far right, uh, they they will actually damage that movement. But I mean, you're familiar with the history of anti-fascism and fascism in many cases was defeated by whether you call it a popular front or a broad front of people who came together who, despite perhaps really intense political differences, uh, recognised that they had a common enemy in, in racists and fascists. Well, I, I think you're into a very interesting historical debate, Hugh, which you may well be familiar with, which is, uh, you know, if you want to get into sort of theory, a political theory between the United Front and the Popular Front. And uh, there is a very active debate. Do you, not, do you not think it would be better when the issue is so serious in terms of, you know, at one stage there in different protests, people were genuinely concerned that someone was going to get seriously hurt. And I think that, const- that concern still exists. Would it not make more sense to present a united front in relation to this specific issue, notwithstanding all of the issues that you've brought up that you're very clearly against, you know, Fianna Gael, Fianna Fáil policies? You have to think about what the far right are doing, okay? And what the far right are doing are saying there is a political establishment out there and everybody from Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael to people before profit and, you know, everybody in between are part of that establishment. That's what they're doing, right? And they're saying they're all equally responsible for the housing crisis, for the health crisis and so on, right? That's a very dangerous move. And of course, it's ultimately what we've seen historically with fascism. It's about undermining democracy completely and establishing authoritarian regimes. Uh, so it's a very dangerous narrative. But what they, what, why, why it sadly gains a certain amount of traction is because there is genuine legitimate anger uh, against the uh, the real establishment in this country, which is self-evidently Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. They've run the country for the entirety of its history. There is, uh, there is legitimate anger against them 
for an absolutely shocking housing crisis. I mean, you can't state how bad the situation is. The neglect of working class communities, uh, the absolutely shocking situation in, in the, the health service, there is legitimate anger and that anger needs to be politically mobilised against the, the real establishment in my opinion. But if you involve them in a movement that is pushing back against the far right, the far right will just say, there you go, they're all the same. They're all the same. Uh, the people who claim to be the opposition to Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael are actually in bed with them. Uh, it will be grist to their mill uh, and it will confirm everything that they are saying. So it is critically important, uh, to my mind, that the movement against racism and the far right is also a movement for radical change in Irish society. And that means being a movement that challenges the people who brought us the housing crisis, the health crisis, austerity and so on. If it isn't, I think it will have lack credibility. It will not get roots in the areas where it really matters. So if we look at the coalition is maybe too strong a word, but the group of parties who are opposed to those current government policies and and uh, your party uh, published an interesting document uh, last week about a future left-wing government and uh, how that might play out. And obviously, um, for all the smaller parties on the left, and there are there are a number of them. Um, there is a kind of a challenge here, isn't there, posed by the uh, the remarkable success of Sinn Féin over the last uh, five or six years of becoming the largest party in the state uh, for the first time. You could say in the history of the state, the largest party in the country is avowedly left-wing. Um, that offers an opportunity for a left-wing government, as you lay out in the document. Also kind of offers a challenge for, for your party in terms of defining itself against, against Sinn Féin, I suppose. Yeah, well, first of all, it's a very exciting development that Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, for the first time, aren't in the majority. Um, and that does present a new opportunity. And people before profit were the first to come out before the last election. When, if you remember back, the main narrative before the last election was... Who will Sinn Féin potentially go in with, right? It, will it be Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael? That was the debate. And we were the one, and actually I remember one of the first papers to run the story was the Irish Times, where we had a press conference running into that election and we said a left government is possible. It was the first time it was said a left government is possible uh, in this election. Vote left, keep left, stay left, and that narrative took off. And again, it was people for profit who made that argument. Right, And uh, we are going to make that argument again, and that was the purpose of this pamphlet. We want to provoke a debate within the left about what are the options running into this election and after this election. Is it going to be a left government that finally breaks the cycle of Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael, or is it going to be a tragic repeat of what we've seen again and again and again in the history of this state, where parties beyond Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael who were on the left, end up propping up Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, uh, 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 which is what has happened every single time, and every single time it's been a disaster. Can I just stop in here? I was really interested in the document when you were talking about Sinn Féin and a government of the left, and I think at one point you were saying that Sinn Féin cannot be trusted to bring in a programme of the left realistically, and that they're kind of, now I'm paraphrasing here obviously, but they, they're talking the talk but they're not going to walk the walk basically is what you were saying and my question would be why would you have a document arguing for this left government and parties of the left come together when on another hand you say I don't trust them but you also say that 
you have already committed to vote for Mary Lou Macdonald as Taoiseach and that you would actually go into coalition with them. I mean, is that not akin to somebody else saying, well, I don't necessarily agree with the policies of Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael, but sure, look, I'll go in with them. Is that not the same thing? No, it's not. And uh, we, first of all, we, we are out to provoke with that pamphlet, right? Deliberately provoke. I got that, I got that impression distinctly. <laughs> yeah, okay. We want to stir up a debate here, uh, a new debate. Uh, and we want to shift the goalposts substantially to the left. So w- that pamphlet is aimed at people who are on the left, right? And, and by that, I mean anybody who's moving to the left. And I think we're sort of at, at a stage where there may well be a majority of people in this country who are generally thinking to the left, right? Uh, who can see that the market and sort of pro-market, centre-right policies have failed us on health, failed us on housing, failed us on childcare. You can go through the list, right? Uh, Privatisation, neoliberalism has failed and they're looking for something to the left as the alternative to that. And then the question is, okay, how do we bring in such a government? What is involved in doing it? And we're very open about this in our debate with Sinn Féin, not least in the North, because remember, People Before Profit are one of the other parties that has representation in the North. And in the North, Sinn Féin are in government with the DUP. Uh, well, obviously not with Stormont uh, d- uh, down for the last year or two, but they're in government with them. And uh, so there's real experience of Sinn Féin in government. Now, we understand the vast majority of people in Sinn Féin are to the left, okay? And the vast majority of their voters tend to vote for us one or two uh, along with them, right? So we're out to to have a debate and Sinn Féin have said explicitly that they are not ruling out the possibility. They say it may be not their preferred option, but they are not ruling out the possibility of entering government with Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael depending on the arithmetic. They said they'll talk to whoever's... They'll talk to whoever. Now, we think they shouldn't. Okay, very simple. Uh, And we're out to provoke that. you said you talked to them and my question is... Why would you go into government with people you don't trust? No, we're simply, we're, 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 we're addressing an argument that is out there in the open, but we actually think it needs to be discussed in a very open way. So when I say we don't trust, it's not that we don't trust the individuals, right? They're, they're, that they're not trustworthy people. We do not trust that if you don't rule out Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, that you're capable of bringing in the sort of policies that the people who vote for us and Sinn Féin, and for that matter, you might say the Social Democrats and some left independents, we don't think you will be find yourself able to bring in the policies that people want, and indeed that many of the left are articulating, to deal with the housing crisis and the health crisis. We don't think it's possible if you entertain the possibility that you're going to do that with either Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael. Can that- I ask you about something in relation to that? We, we ran them um, as part of the North-South series of polls that we ran over the course of December and January. I mean, one of the real striking results was we did ask people um, about, you know, where they considered themselves to be on the political spectrum. And really significant majority, I think somewhere between 70 and 75%, considered themselves as being on the left in some form or another, which is, you know, which is incredibly high and it probably gives great sucker to, you know, your party and, and similar parties. But, you know, it included, you know, 25% of Fine Gael voters, for example, which might come as a surprise. Is there a point at which being on the left just becomes a meaningless badge? If everybody's, you know, if everybody's special, then nobody's special. Well, first of all, I'm very glad to see that huge shift in opinion. And, um, but I think we need to sort of crystallise that into a left government. I mean, you would say that some of the parties that describe themselves as being on the left, Labour and the Greens, for example, are not on the left. So, 
you immediately start, you know, Islamic oh, I, think, I think what we would say is that they have made a big mistake. And that's what we're trying to get at in this debate is the mistake of having a surge of support for promised left-wing policies, for uh, a political project that promised to provide an alternative to Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. And that's what Labour did before the two... 216 election. They said, you know, not a red cent and uh, we're going to, you know, we're going to challenge all the austerity stuff. And then they went in with Fine Gael. We think that was a diabolical mistake. And it is a mistake that they have suffered for very, very badly. I also think it demoralised people who were looking for a left alternative. And it, it sort of is it, uh, cultivated the view that ah, you'll never get change, right? And that's terrible for our project, for, their, for a left project, if people become demoralised and think everybody's always going to sell you out, right? And Labour still have not put up their hands and said, we shouldn't have done that. Jennifer, can I, can I ask for your analysis on something? The, the vote left, stay left, um, approach, which was very successful, particularly for people before profit and the Social Democrats, I'd say, at the last election in 2020. One of the reasons it was successful was because of a, uh, an understandable strategic misstep by Sinn Féin not running enough candidates, and there were a lot of votes floating around. I mean, Richard, I know that you topped the poll in first preferences in Dunleary, but it did help that Sinn Féin got 10%, and it was those transfers that uh, that got you over the line. How do you think that's likely to play out with a much bigger Sinn Féin and more candidates next time around? That must be a concern to some of those some of those parties. Well, nothing's a given, you know, and so mm. much changes during an election campaign. But let's say that the opinion polls keep going, that that trend continues, albeit that there have been a few wobbles for Sinn Féin recently. I mean, if we look at the constituency, so your own constituency, um, Dunleary, I think you'd run 15.5% the first preference vote. Um, but Sinn Féin's Shane O'Brien, who I don't think was ever really tipped as having a chance of having a seat there, he was eliminated. And you took a really significant chunk of his votes, I think around 5,000. So, you know, you can see that kind of coming into play there, I suppose, as well. If you look at Paul Murphy in, in 2020 um, in Dublin Southwest, there was the distribution of Sean Crow's surplus. So his surplus was a massive, 8,816. And Paul Murphy received 3,444 of those transfers from of, the, of that surplus from Crow. So you put a second Sinn Féin candidate into that constituency and it begs the question. This is what this is exactly. And that moved him into a much more stable position. If you look at Gino Kenny um, in Dublin Midwest, I mean, he was actually one of the comeback stories of, of 2020 general election because he kind of said, I, I'm out. And actually, mm. he, he won the seat. Um, That's right. Um, Interestingly, he withstood two Sinn Féin. He did. And, TDs, yeah, and but in, in that yeah. constituency, um, you know, you would wonder, will Sinn Féin next time run three candidates, which they are suggesting that they will. How does that play out for that seat? And if you look at Breed Smith in Dublin South Centre, Breed Smith, a really high profile TD, you know, very um, vocal pro-choice campaigner, um, very, like very high national media profile is what I'm saying. She took a massive chunk of Angus O'Snodic's surplus. She took nearly 5,000 votes, which nabbed her the second seat. So I'm just looking in terms of the TDs and the constituencies, certainly helped by Sinn Féin and the question is, will that squeeze you guys out next time? And not just you guys, but, you know, suck Dems, Labour, um, Green Party, etc. Yeah, well, listen, I think, you know, it, it's clear when you look at the arithmetic that that potential could exist under certain scenarios. However, I think the bigger backdrop to this is the, the 
continual move to the left of the Irish electorate. And frankly, I think that every sort of new generation of young people coming into the into the electorate is moving things further to left. I think there's a massive student radicalisation, for example, at the moment, which is quite like remarkable. And would that be for you or the Sock Dems? Can you see the poll at the weekend? Both, uh, mm. The two most popular parties, for example, in Trinity, I think there was some poll. Now, Trinity is Oh, I saw that. Yeah, yeah, I saw we're that, yeah. ourselves and the Sock Dems. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hardly uh, a bastion of working class activism, Trinity. Oh, no, true. But uh, yeah, I was out in UCD okay. recently. It was very interesting that in UCD there was a debate uh, and uh, they were doing... The major issue that dominated the debate, and this wasn't a left-wing society, it was just a general politics society, was the issue of housing. Now, 10 years ago, or when I was in college, housing was not a major issue for students, right? So there's, the, the students are being impacted by the cost of living and housing crisis, and it is radicalizing people, and it's making them very angry, and I think that's building, frankly, to a boiling point. Again, like, people for profit have often been instigators in these things. We always actively go out and seek the involvement of the other left-wing parties. Very unusual, right, that we do that, because other parties tend to just do what they do in the doll and in their own name. We actively go out and build broad fronts with other parties of the left. But we also think it is legitimate to have a debate with them while we're doing that, okay? And, uh, okay, will that squeeze us? Well, it can also do something else, which is move the whole pitch to the left. And I think it is interesting that Gino still won his seat, despite the fact that two Sinn Féin people were running uh, and and won seats. Uh, And obviously in Dunleary, people for profit topped the poll. And there was no question, with or without Sinn Féin... Uh, yeah, you were always going to make it. We, we, sure. We're going to be... Now, I wouldn't take nothing for granted, right? And, you know, it's all about the work you do, the positions you take, are you consistent and principled? But I wouldn't just sort of assume from the last election that this is going to happen if they run more candidates. Everything is mo- is movable in politics. And oh, what, that, that's what I meant. Everything yeah. could change, in, especially in an election campaign. But I think it was just interesting to look at the... The, the way in which parties of the left benefited from the Sinn Féin surge. Um, yeah, yeah. I have a, a question, but, I mean, if that's okay. One other just comment briefly on that, though, is I think what it also shows is that the voters for Sinn Féin, people before profit, Social Democrats, and you could add in the, the left independents, are all sort of in together. Do you know what I mean? That people want to vote for all of them. Uh, and they probably at the moment would see, rightly, Sinn Féin as the, uh, as the major vehicle that can hit back against the government. But they're also simultaneously voting for us, for the Social Democrats, uh, for left independence. Now, to me, that's good, right? And they actually want all of us elected. And when the election, when the electorate wants something, that can often translate into what happens. Well, Fidigal and Fidifal still command a fair whack of support if you put them, you know, especially Fall, together. Falling consistently, no. Falling, the, the historical trajectory is unmistakable. Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael's support is falling consistently every election and my God, they have now been forced to go in together and to admit they are the same party, which is what they are. <laughs> well, we're going to take a quick break there, then now. Uh, do remember that uh, if you want to read... Uh, continuing coverage um, of People Before Profits um, progress, you need to subscribe to irishtimes.com. You can go to irishtimes.com slash subscribe for a very minor fee. In fact, also, I should give you a plug. If you want to read that uh, People Before Profit document, I think it can be downloaded for the uh, very reasonable sum of three euro, not much profit there, um, from from the People Before Profit website. Uh, We'll be back after this. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. 
website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And welcome back. Uh, Jen and Richard are still here. We're discussing people before profit. I am slightly intrigued by... People Before Profit's success in Dunleary, like you, I uh, I grew up in that constituency, leafy suburbs and all that, very middle class, very comfortable place, an, un- an unlikely place for the revolution to start. I Well, first of all, I think, although there are plenty of wealthy people uh, and maybe even a disproportionate number of middle class people compared to some constituencies. I think it's one of the wealthiest places in the country, isn't it, Over generally, if you did a per it, capita? It could, it, could, it could well be. It could well be. But there's also a very, very significant working class. And that's where we get most of our votes. Not all of our votes. It's spread across. But... Ali Brack, Sally Noggin, Ratsala, Monkstown Farm. Still organ on every side. Uh, bits of it, but uh, it would be that would be more rat down. And also even in Blackrock, there's, there's council housing and uh, working class areas uh, in Blackrock. So, I mean, is your vote in Dunleary a working class vote then, or is it a mix of a working class vote? It, it, I always think there's a certain kind of you know eating chickpea curries in Clarenda Park kind of a Dunleary <laughs> vote um, that, that people for profit would be able to access uh, as well. Well, if you look at the, the breakdown of the votes, the, by far the biggest vote for us, proportionately speaking, is in Ballybrack, Sally Noggin, Monkstown Farm, Ratsala. That's where we're getting 50% of the vote in, in many of the boxes in those areas. But you're right to say that in areas that wouldn't be, if you like, you know, classically considered to be working class, we are also getting votes. More like 10 or 15% rather than 50% we might get in working class areas. Why is that? Uh, well, first of all, you know, there's stereotypes about the working class that it's just, uh, you know, it, who are the working class? Is it just blue-collar workers or is it white-collar workers? They, you know, and I think the working class is a much bigger group than we often uh, give it credit for, if you know what I mean. And uh, Are you working class? <sighs> Well, I was brought up in what I think you would probably describe as a middle-class household. But I've also, you know, socially, the people I hung around with uh, when I was young were overwhelmingly working-class people. Because, I mean, and the reason the reason I'm digging into this is because social class, I think quite rightly, my personal view mm. is that we don't look enough at social class in Ireland and the way that yeah, it, yeah. it drives politics. But if if you look at PBP's parliamentary representation, 50% of you went to fee-paying schools, less than 6% of population as a whole go to fee-paying secondary schools. So that's weirdly disproportionate. It does beg a question about where PBP is coming from, well, okay. intellectually, socially, culturally. Yeah, well, yeah, I don't think anybody now would uh, would uh, accuse Breed Smith or Gino Kenny of being uh, middle class. So, you know, I think... Yeah, I'm, but 50% versus 7% know, of the overall okay, population. I'll, t- I'll answer your I mean, point. But yeah. first of all, if you look at the, the, the demographic of, of people for profit and its vote, 
It's overwhelmingly working class. There's absolutely no question about it. What do you make of this <laughs> this this class thing, John? Um, I totally honestly. Um not much, to be honest. <laughs> not going to lie. I mean, for me, uh, it's it's not that it's irrelevant. I think it's a really interesting point. But I think if you look at the politics of people for profit, I think they're very clearly, you know, you've, you've outlined some of the policies there. The thing that I'm more interested in is in relation to the question you asked about support yeah. for PBP and, and support in Dunleary and the, and the makeup of the constituency. Is one of the biggest issues housing effectively? Um, and if it is, and if a lot of the support is coming from the fact that every single person is impacted by the housing crisis, doesn't just have to be a person in their 20s or 30s. It could be someone whose kid is still in their box room. Every single generation now, up to any generation, you name it, is impacted. If that is the case, I would wonder, and I don't mean this to be snarky at all, but under my calculations, you've objected to a number of different housing developments across the constituency and under my calculations it's at least 1,700 units and I looked into the reasons and I know a lot of them are down to height one of them was because it didn't fit in with the area's Victorian ambiance my question is if housing is the big issue saying it is if that's one of the motivating factors for people to vote for PBP in the constituency why are you objecting to so many houses? Because are we not at a stage now where it's all well and good to say, I don't like the height, I don't like the ambience. We don't have the luxury anymore of doing that. Yeah, I th- look, first of all, this this particular little story was, was uh, you know, put together by a constituency colleague of mine from well, Fianna no, But in, in fairness, but, <laughs> I went back myself last night because yeah, I no, thought fine, you might fine. say I'm, this. I'm happy, I'm happy to... I'm happy to uh, do you dispute the figures? No, I don't actually. Uh, but for, the first thing I'd say is their submissions and observations. In many of those, we made clear that those sites were suitable and indeed that we would like housing on those sites. But we didn't like the type of development that was being proposed, right? So to give you one example, the co-living development on Iblana Avenue, I am very proud I opposed it, right? Very proud. Because we had been campaigning for years to get public and affordable housing on that site. And you could have had hundreds of public and affordable housing. Instead, we have now got this membership co-living development that is, they're talking about charging €1,800. You can only rent it for six months or a year. You have to apply to do it and you have to show you have an income that would probably have to be in the region of seventy or €80,000. In other words, it will do zero, less than zero, for the people who are affected by the I housing accept that, crisis. But can I talk to you about Dalguys Road? 400, Dalguys Road, yeah. 491 units. Yeah. And your objection said that it would dampen the Victorian ambiance of the Monkstown area. Now, I accept that you're one of 70 parties. I know that that's not just you to raise an issue in relation to this. Can you understand that for other people reading that? My natural reaction was lots of things don't fit the natural ambiance. But like what the, the real natural ambiance we should have is a home. Like your party says housing is a right that we're all entitled to. Those 491 families have been denied that or could be denied that right on no, the basis of objections. No, well, see, for, first of all, the, the idea that because we have a housing crisis, that whatever developers, and in this case, an American asset management company wants to do in a particular area is going to solve the housing crisis or is necessarily the right development. Uh, we, we are absolutely of the view that the Dalgai site could be and should be used to develop public and affordable housing. I do not think the particular development that is being 
uh, proposed there is an appropriate development. And by the way, I do take seriously the issue of architectural heritage. Sorry, I do. And I don't think uh, having the ramping up of housing that we need means we just have to build any old rubbish. Okay, but what about uh, in Glenagiri, Red Rock Developments, 147 apartments, um, and you objected to the height and the scale of the development because it's nine stories, and you said that the scheme would tower over the cottages in the Parnell and Sarsfield streets. Um, I mean, there are more units that could have been that built. That site was originally had planning permission for specialised accommodation for elderly people, Right. That's what it was originally proposed. The community had actively sought that because the people who objected it mostly were working class people in exactly Parnell Street, Sarsfield Street, which is a working class, a working class area in Sally Noggin. And as part of the development of the supermarket that was near that site, when it was originally uh, proposed, there were commitments to give certain amenities and accommodation for elderly people. Then they were broken. And what you got was a for-profit development that was purely about maximising the value of that site and where we absolutely know, because everything of that sort, these are SHDs that are being built, are completely unaffordable. Right? Completely unaffordable. So I, I, but unaffordability comes from a lack of supply. No, it and doesn't. And every time no, a housing objection is lodged, no, that's another... That's absolutely not true, Jennifer. And but it is. No, it's not. At it the height is. of the Celtic Tiger, we had massive supply and the prices... We're not at the height. This is a very different situation no, now. No, no, I'm simply... When we had 90,000 houses being built a year, did prices go down? No, they went up consistently. Rents went up, house prices went up. Because what was being built was being built for profit. It wasn't being built to provide public and affordable housing. It's a big problem as well, not only, and I know in terms of PBP's policies in terms of housing, it's, you know, um, state-led housing on publicly owned land. And I think a lot of people would question, why are the government so wedded to the current model? Um, And... But that's a genuine question that a lot of people have, understandably. Uh, my question to you would be, if you got into government, and I know the, the promises that you've made, is a big issue, not the bureaucracy. You know, we've heard a lot about this four-step procedure in, in the Department of Housing. Um, is it actually got to the stage now, has it got to the stage where it actually makes more sense for the government to buy, let's say, turnkey developments or whatever, from the private sector because the bureaucracy weighs it down so much that actually it takes years to get anything built through the state process. And what would you do about that? Because that's a massive problem, I think. Again, we were the first to argue about two or three years ago because of a development in Dunleary being sat on by a vulture fund in St. Helens Court on the main street that they should step in and buy it, right? Personally, I wouldn't give them allow them to make a profit. I'd use compulsory purchase powers and I'd give them cost price. That's what my policy would be, right? Uh, I don't see why these uh, these uh, vulture funds that are sitting on property uh, uh, trying to evict people and watching the value of the thing clock up as an asset, which they then flip, uh, should be allowed to do that, right? So we would take very radical measures to use CPO powers to take those properties off them. And I might give you another example of a planning permission, by the way, that's just gone through. Iris Reit up in Sandyford, as soon as they get the planning permission for another high-rise development, they flip it on. They flip it on. That's what they're doing. And the IGES report is uh, explicitly says that many of the planning permissions that are being sought at the moment are being done on a speculative basis to flip property and increase uh, la- uh, property values, which is increasing the price of housing. So we, we will stop that. 
right? And we would do what, what is being done in Finland, which is nationalise the building land, all of it, uh, so that they can't manipulate land prices, which is one of the major factors driving up cost. Uh, and it would also remove a lot of the bureaucracy because the state would say, right, this is what, we need this much housing. This is the land that is available to do us, to, to do that. And yes, it might be a mix of public and private, but we are going to plan it to ensure we have enough affordable housing. And we're going to plan that in a sustainable way. And if a private developer wants to build something, they will have to come to us and say, we want to build something and this is why it will contribute to the housing uh, crisis that we're facing. I know there's been endless need. debates about this going back to the 70s, but it's good that you're looking forward and talking about the kind of things that a government which PBP is involved in, you know, would would do in the future. Do you think that would require a constitutional amendment? There's been argue, arguments about that for, for years. Know, but let's, I mean, that argument that we're making is, by the way, sure. essentially the argument that the Kenny report Absolutely. made. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's, not, it's not a radical new argument. Would it? I don't know. I mean, I think the Constitution actually is more robust in this area than you might think. It says very clearly that while private property sort of limits, you know, uh, are, have to be protected, that they can be overridden in cases of the common good. Now, if, this, if the, the question of resolving the housing crisis is not the common good, I don't know what it what is. And let's remember, a lot of the measures the government said might be constitutionally challenged around RPZs, around the COVID eviction ban it then turned out they could do. Sure. So I don't really buy it. But having said that, I do think it would be best to have a constitutional referendum to just clarify that issue and get it off the pitch because there's nothing else, if nothing else, as an excuse being used by the government to doing the sort of things that are necessary to control rents because we need proper rent controls, similar to what they have in the rest of Europe. We need proper tenants' rights so that people can't just be evicted. But just on that, you know, you're saying now we know it is constitutional or we know the reason, one of the reasons why they didn't extend the evictions ban, which they said, one of the reasons they gave, and we saw it in a cabinet memo, part of, part of it was worried about an exodus of landlords, but the other part did seem to come on the basis of advice from the Attorney General, who said that if you were going to extend it, they'd need serious legal justification. I mean, how would you square that? If you are sitting down as a minister in the next government and the AG is sitting in front of you at the cabinet table and saying, if you do this, well, actually, here's what's going to happen, just, uh, would you power on and just say, yes, never mind? Yes, get a test in court. Let the, let the, the property speculators and property investors t- take the government to court if they want. But actually, interestingly, uh, the uh, Taoiseach, Leo Varadkar, the other day clarified this and said that the AG had said this would very possibly be tested in the courts and the government would have to testify to the fact that uh, continuing the eviction ban was in the common, common good mm. and that actually the government decided, not the AG, the government decided it wasn't in the common good, right? So it was a political decision, not a legal decision. And he made that very clear yesterday in the Dáil. Uh, so had the government decided it was in the common good, which a left-wing government would have done, uh, and I think we, we saw that across all of the left parties uh, and independence in the Dáil, then there wouldn't have been a constitutional impediment. There so what if there was a massive exodus of landlords from the private sector? I, uh, just, I understand well, that you want to move away from that, but there's still a short-term... 
actually short to medium term uh, well, problem? Well, first of all, I suspect, and I'm trying to get figures on this in the moment, that actually the number of private residential tenancies has increased, not reduced, okay? Certainly some of what are called accidental landlords in significant numbers are leaving. I think mostly because they're cashing in on the high property values that are out there at the moment. I mean, when prices reach the height they're at now, which are absolutely ridiculous, right, people are cashing in on an asset and a lot of people are being evicted as a result. What that shows is you cannot depend on accidental landlordism to meet uh, the housing needs of people in this country. It's just not going to work. Uh, So you need... The ultimate solution is the state to provide adequate numbers of social and affordable houses where people have security. But could they stop the exodus? I mean, the the landlords who are selling up, they can't bring the houses with them. The houses are still available for the housing sector. So the question is, who's going to get them? Are they being bought up by vulture funds or will the state buy them up? Uh, well, this is what they're talking about, approved housing bodies to come in and take over yeah, by those houses. Yeah, but I'll tell you, it's like pulling teeth trying to get it. I've been trying to get it to happen with developments in my area for the last two years and every excuse under the sun is being used not like to what? do it. Oh, uh, well, we have to negotiate. We don't want to be held over a barrel by the seller so that the price might be uh, might be too high. Are we going to pay market price? That's we can't do individual houses. Another excuse, right? Uh, I mean, I'm going to court this Friday with a family for the second time in the last few weeks who are being evicted from the home they've lived in all their lives. They've, they're a working family, always paid their rent, never did anything wrong and they're being evicted from a house that they've lived in since the 1950s with their two children and there is nothing available for them, support-wise from the government because they're over the income threshold. Because they're working, they're not entitled to HAP, they're not entitled to social housing uh, and they're being told currently by the government, oh sorry, we can't purchase that house because you're not on the social housing list. It's absolutely outrageous. And that family are terrified about where they're going to end up. Even those thresholds are just outrageous, right? That you go over a cliff because you earn 44,000 net. I have another case of a young woman who is in homeless accommodation for the last four years sharing one bedroom with her teenage child who's been homeless now for four years, right? Who works, ironically, works with Tuzla looking after vulnerable children. That's her job, right? And her child's mental health is on the floor. Because she was over the threshold, she was taken off the list, and at one point they even tried to evict her from homeless accommodation. The, I mean, it's just there, there's no doubt that these issues are right at the centre of Irish politics at the moment. It will continue to be for 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 quite a long time. And I think listening to you, I think there's actually these are areas where you have a lot of commonality with some of the other parties of the left who we who, who we mentioned earlier on. I did want to touch on a couple of other things which which, which PBP think a, a left government should do. I mean, one is to include uh, to increase to address what you describe as tax shelters and increase corporation tax to twenty percent. And just as you were saying just a moment ago that you know landlords can't take their house and waltz off out of the country. Well, the the argument would be that corporations can do exactly that. I was quite taken by a line, I just have it here, where you say, should corporations move production abroad by uh, workers can occupy their workplaces and holding the machinery? I don't know, it's just laptops when it comes to Facebook, isn't it? I mean, I think they can go whenever they want, really, can't they? Uh, well, I have to mention, seeing as uh, you're, you're bringing up that question, the Debenhams strike and the film that got awards there at the weekend, the documentary film made by Joe Lee and Fergus Dowd, uh, which is very sort of instructive about a lot of things, I think. But uh, thousands of workers who'd worked for a multinational 
for all you know for twenty or thirty years had created the value of that company. And that company then, in my opinion, and the, certainly the documentary bears this out, executed a, the most cynical tactical liquidation to leave those workers with absolutely nothing. And interestingly, the consortium that did this, who are a share of vulture funds, walked off with uh, 315 million euro. The redundancy that the workers in Debenhams would have been entitled to would have been 13 million. People who'd never done anything for that company, who just came in, just walked off 315 million euro, and that's allowed legally, right? But those workers put up pickets for 406 days, occupied stores and so on, then got the police sent, against, sent in against them, of course. To my mind, that what they did is an example of what needs to happen. Do you think Mark Zuckerberg would care about that? Yeah, I do, actually. I do. They've invested a lot of money uh, in building their various, uh, in their various premises. And I think I remember talking. Would be, I remember talking a few years ago to uh, the head of the Irish branch of one of these um, very large. I'm not going to mention it. Foreign direct investment companies, and he said to me, he waved across the very large open plan office that we were in in a large building, and he said we could uh, bring four Boeing seven four sevens into Dublin Airport next Monday and take the whole thing out. Yeah, well, of course they're going to say that. They're going to say that. But it was probably true. Yeah, but listen, I mean, when we argued, for example, and we were ahead of the game again in people for profit in arguing against things like the double Irish, uh, in challenging the corporate tax loopholes that these companies were utilising to pay pathetic levels of tax, not even the 12.5%, but more like about 5% in reality, when we argued that that should happen and that things like the double Irish should be closed down, we were told exactly the same thing. Oh, they'll run for the hills. But actually, they didn't run for the hills. Uh, some of those loopholes, at least, were closed down. The double Irish was, to some extent... So you don't think they'll move? So you think the kind of, the, the, the kind of provisional elements which you talk about in, in, in the document about having to take over the means of production and things like that, I think you talk about taking over pharmaceutical factories as well and producing our, our own Irish well, brands, I, 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 Irish Viagra. Um, no, I think the more serious, Hugh, I think the more, I think the more serious question is what happens when those companies themselves, through nothing to do with the tax regime, decide to exit? Well, I think that's an extremely serious question, but, yeah. they're, they're, but both those questions can coexist in the same space. Uh, there's no evidence of what you're saying. None, right? There's no evidence. They've, now we've, we're getting internationally increase in corporate tax level to a minimum rate of 15%. But, the, but your document itself, you know, posits the possibility that they will. So you, you think it's a possibility. Yeah, and if they do, we would argue for the nationalisation of those premises. Absolutely. Without a shadow of a doubt, we would argue for that. Why should uh, infrastructure that has been built, and because remember those things have to be supplied water, electricity, uh, huge amounts of public resources have gone into developing some of these sites and locations. Why on earth would you allow these profit-driven corporations to, to just pack it all up and leave? Of course you would, uh, would nationalise them. And I would say there's a whole number of areas of our economy that need urgently to come under public control and to operate on a not-for-profit basis uh, for the good of the country, for the common good, and to provide security of key areas of infrastructure and key areas of industry. Mm, I think it's an interesting argument. The one thing I'm struck by a lot in, in kind of PBP policy is how often you argue for things to be nationalised, um, including the banks. I presume that's still PBP policy. Absolutely. Um, what I would question there is, especially in relation to nationalising the banks, for example, is, I mean, does it not make sense for 
it doesn't make literally no sense what I'm asking for for the banking system to be integrated with the political system. Is there not issue there with political interference? Is there not an issue there with what do you do with all the shareholders? What about all the bad assets? Why should the taxpayer take on, you know, all of these massive contingencies? Well, uh, that's that's you exactly know. what happened in 2008. Well, okay, so there the was a recapitalisation, but I'm, I'm asking in terms no, of... No, there was nationalisation. Wholesale nationalisation. I'm asking in, in terms of your argument for nationalisation. Is there not a massive argument for it to be kept completely away from the political system? Last thing politicians should be running is a bank. Well, do do we think that people who believe their salaries should be way in excess of half a million euro a year be running the bank? So let's say do, the do next we time think someone's appointed, politically appointed, what's to say they're not going to be influenced by political motivations in terms of funding, mortgages? Well, you see, we have a thing, for example, called the credit union in this country, which is has a democratic... democratic no, but that, that's not what I'm asking. Oh, but, I'm, I'm asking but that's what I'm proposing. Bank is that we have, we have financial institutions which are democratically run and operate on a not-for-profit basis because the for-profit, privately owned banking system brought this country to the abyss uh, in 2008. It was directly responsible for the madness of the Celtic Tiger uh, and the horrors of austerity that followed. And when they're when the whole house of cards collapsed on top of working class people in this country in a very bitter way, uh, the state did step in. Of course, not to protect the working people, but to protect the financial institutions, to restore them to profitability. And you may have noticed that today AIB, once again, a nationalised bank, uh, announces 790 million euros in profits on which they will pay very little tax because they can carry their losses from the past forward. All of that was paid for by working people. Now, do I think actually that the uh, objectives of that bank should be more directed towards, for example, providing social and affordable housing, uh, meeting the needs of ordinary people, or simply enriching the shareholders, the private and minority, you know, a tiny minority of very wealthy people in this country who will get dividends from shareholders. Yeah, I'm for the people. But when I picture, people when I picture your idea of nationalised banking system, I genuinely picture an abysmally run, bloated system full of political interference or the possibility of, or the potential for, and if you nationalised all of them, uh, a complete lack of competition. I mean, the monopoly's bad enough here at the moment with banks, isn't it? Look, there's a, there's, a, there's a myth of neoliberalism, which, let's be honest, right, we have been pursuing since the 1970s, okay, which is deregulate, privatise everything. Uh, and it's not just the banks, it's energy, telecommunications, the housing sector, very importantly, uh, where, you know, you go back before that period, 30 to 40% of the housing that was being built was state-built, and then we moved to a tiny percentage, so we deregulated and privatised. How's that worked out, right? All of those telecommunications, privatisation, utter disaster. Okay, so I, I make We are familiar with these concepts here. I remember, we, we, I remember only a few months ago interviewing the author of The Decline and Fall of Neoliberalism. I mean, we know that this is a concept which is extremely contentious and it's, and it's open to debate and it's open to debate with lots of parties. There is one other... But could we... But just to I finish mean, the point, okay, you, yeah. could we experiment with the possibility we will break from this failed logic 
and that we will have more state intervention and we will have more public But I'm not ownership. sure what Jennifer's suggesting is a return to the full, full-throated neoliberalism. I mean, you know, private, privately owned banks predated neoliberalism by, by centuries, you know, so the, the two don't necessarily oh, no, uh, I'm, go I'm together. I'm more just interested in the reality of the policy. I think people in the next election will look at your manifesto and go, what does that mean, realistically? What would I be left with at the end of it? And another thing I was hoping to ask, if I, if I may, Hugh, just in relation to economic principles. I know you're talking about corporation tax and 20%. Um, you know, we know from the budgetary watchdog that anywhere up to 10 companies account for 56% of our corporation tax. And and, and that's terrifying yeah. in many ways. Um, but on the other hand, a lot of the things you promise, such as a minimum wage, I think 16 euro. 15. Uh, 15, keeping the, the pension age at 65, national health service, abolishing direct provision entirely. These things cost billions and billions of euros. And my question is, you say that you would fund those by increasing the tax to 20%. But just the fact not if you did that, you spook the horses entirely, uh, completely deplete a massive part and, and a part of the tax base, which is highly divisive and hugely problematic. Yes. But is that not what would happen? What I'm asking is, can you actually fund any of your promises? Yeah, I think, first of all, we're one of the only parties that actually has quite extensive proposals to raise large amounts of revenue through not just corporate tax changes, but also through wealth taxes, Mm -hmm. through taxes on multiple properties, through financial transaction taxes. Uh, And to be honest, I think some of your question would be better directed to some of the other left parties who I don't actually think have the tax proposals to fund some of the things that they're saying. You're talking mission Finn? I'm not talking about anybody. You can can work that out. Uh, Right, so we go to a lot of trouble every year to to actually propose tax measures that could fund the sort of dramatic and radical policy changes we're proposing. But it is very interesting that a lot of people are starting to agree with us now, right? I mean, Oxfam are essentially now proposing a wealth tax that is almost exactly the same as the one we've been proposing for the last 10 years. And they say that uh, imposing a two and sort of slightly, uh, what's the word, stepped um, wealth tax, two, three and four percent on people who own more than four million euros in wealth would raise eight billion euro in revenue every year. That's a lot of money, okay? And they... As they point well, out, I should say there have been critiques of whether that would oh, actually be achievable in the end, as there would be with any I know, proposal. But what's that interesting? Sort. One point that's made in Ireland is that a huge amount of assets are held in property, and that, yeah, that if you that if you that if you don't if you don't tax property, you know, vigorously as part of your wealth tax, you're not going to get to where you need. Yeah, to Yeah, well, I'm a real nerd in these things, so I study them, and indeed, uh, the one of the problems is actually we don't do proper the state itself does not do a proper breakdown of all that wealth but actually insofar as we have any analysis of it it's from the central bank and they say about 50% of it is slightly more is property okay but what's clear when you look at the distribution what we know and we don't do again proper studies on the distribution of that wealth but insofar as they've been done the bottom 50% of uh, those with wealth have about less than 2% of that wealth, okay? No, we're uh, talking about the Victorian ambience of Monkstown. That's where the money is, isn't it? Uh, well, it's in people who are the big corporate executives, the big people who make money out of property. Uh, that's that's where it's at, but it's people with... The, mo- the people who live in Dunleary. That's what you're talking about. 
I don't. I think they live all over the place. I think oh, the there's, wealth. There's more of them in Dunleary. I think than the wealthy. Else. The wealthy. There's quite a few of them in Dunleary. That's absolutely true. I want to ask. But I do it, want to ask you one other question because yeah. uh, our. Our producer's making faces at us quite rightly because yeah, yeah. we've been going on no, for, for quite a while. Yeah. I'm fascinated by, by, by one point in, in your document because we, we started with talking about how you believe that there's more to democracy than just parliamentary elections and things like that. Um, and you, you talk about the function of, and you say that a constitutional amendment may be required for this, about supplanting, supporting, uh, adding an element which you call people's assemblies described as a form of participative direct democracy that invites communities and workplaces representatives to come together and deliberate on measures needed to bring about more social equality. I just wonder, how does that work alongside what we normally think of as democracy? And what happens if if you get a left-wing government and the People's Republic of Daenery, you know, its People's Assembly is set up and poor old Jennifer Carroll McNeil, she lost the election, she's been off chatting with the army and the guards and now she's coming down to the People's Assembly to represent the Fine Gael position. <laughs> Does she get a hearing and who decides she gets a hearing? Uh, well, I think, first of all, it's an interesting experiment that we've had with things like the Citizen Assemblies uh, where... In, in a way, what we're arguing for there is a kind of expanded version of the citizens' assemblies, but that it's actually becomes an institution of democracy, which is a more direct form of democracy as against simply having an election every four or five years, which I think is a very limited form of democracy and where there isn't sufficient accountability of those who are elected and which is based around professional politicians rather than, if you like, something that is more directly responsive to ordinary people. So that's what we're arguing for. Pretty uh, easily manipulated I, that, isn't it? In fact, we've seen examples of that over the years, that if you don't have the right ideas, you might end up, you know, either exiled or liquidated. We've seen with some of those those kind of political systems in the past. Well, I mean, if you're talking about authoritarian regimes, yeah, I mean, yeah. but this is the opposite of authoritarian regimes. There was no, there was no popular democracy uh, in the authoritarian regimes of Eastern Europe, which, by the way, some of us very actively opposed uh, as regimes and supported the movements that overthrew them. But uh, what I would say is that capitalism, in a way, because it centralizes wealth into the hands and increasingly into the hands of a very small number of people, effectively sabotages and subverts democracy. And it's worth saying that much of the capitalist world is no even pretense of democracy. I mean, China, so-called communist country, but actually a capitalist country, has no democracy. Saudi Arabia, and what's the difference between that and Saudi Arabia or the United Arab Emirates uh, or some of these absolutely horrendous regimes that the Western capitalist world do huge business with, sell massive amounts of weapons and arms uh, and so on. So uh, my view is that there's something fundamentally undemocratic about a world where there is gross and growing inequality in the distribution of wealth and that needs to be challenged. Uh, and we need a more thoroughgoing democracy which isn't just an election every four years but which is also about democratising control of the economic resources and wealth in society. Richard, I'm in trouble now because of all the small party leaders, you have by far had the longest uh, interview <laughs> and we've put everybody out of whack. But that's because there were so many interesting things to talk about and I do appreciate it. This uh, podcast was produced by Suzanne Brennan. It's engineered by JJ Vernon. Thanks very much to Richard and to Jen for joining us. We're going to be back very soon indeed. Thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? 
Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.